Now, as we get started tonight, I want to tell you a little bit about me. There's a phrase that has popped up in my life over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And every time I hear it, I have a response to it. And what I mean by that is I sometimes I have a physical response. Like my body will actually get tense. And I have this like fight or flight kind of physical response. My heart starts beating a little bit faster. Palms sweaty. Palms get never. So I have this fight or flight response, and I get ready to either give a verbal response or to get out of the situation. Other times I have an emotional response. When I hear this phrase uttered, sometimes I get defensive, sometimes I get angry, sometimes I get a little bit scared. But it's come up over and over again in my life. The phrase is this. But Michael, you're a Christian. But Michael, you're a Christian. And the reason I have a defensive response to that phrase is because anytime somebody has said that phrase to me, they have this expectation of what I should be doing as a Christian, and I'm not living up to that expectation. Every single time that phrase has been said, but Michael, you're a Christian. They follow it with what they believe Christians should do and should be about, simply to point out what I'm not doing. Now, I'm about to tell a story, but before I tell this story, I want to give a little context. Here's what I believe about scholarships and youth ministry. So every event, a lot of events that we do cost money, okay? Youth camp, as an example, costs $215. What I believe about scholarships is this. Number one, if you need a scholarship, if you cannot afford to pay for one of our events, money will never be the reason you don't come to something. Ever. I expect every student, every family, to pay exactly the amount that their family can pay. And so if we have an event that's $215, and your family can pay $215, you can afford it, then I want your family to pay $215. But if your family can pay $37.12, I want your family to pay what? $37.12. And if your family can't pay a dime, then don't look for change in the, in the couch. Don't pay a dime. Ask for a scholarship for whatever amount you need. I expect every family to pay exactly the amount they can pay. Now, the reason I use the number $37.12 as my example of how much is because I had a family in the past that could pay $35 for an event. And when the kids in the family, not the teenagers, but when the children in the home found out that they could pay $35, they said, you know what, I think we can find something. And they scrounged up $2 bills, a dime, and two pennies. And the little kids in the house contributed $2.12 to the trip. And mom and dad contributed $35, and the church covered the rest. That family paid exactly what their family could pay. So the only expectation I have is to pay exactly what you can pay. Number two, I expect students who get scholarships to show up to the event. It's not complicated. If you've asked for the scholarship, please show up to the event. Because anytime you sign up for something, that's real dollars we're paying out to another organization. So for camp, as an example, it's $215. Anytime somebody signs up for camp, we automatically cut a check to the camp we're going to for well over $150. Because that's what the beds and the food cost just for showing up. We book it based on those numbers. 
And so we expect people to show up. And then number three, I expect an anonymous thank you note. That's it. Because we have people in this church who give and give and give so that we never have to tell a student no on an event. And all I want them to hear is this is what happened at this event because you gave a scholarship for a kid. And when I say an anonymous thank you note, I don't need your signature. I don't need your name on it. You can say some random teenager. I don't care what you sign it as. Nobody ever has to know that you're the one who got the scholarship. I just want the people who give money to hear stories about where their dollars are going. So at my last church, I had this family who were very faithful in asking for full scholarships. Every event we did, they said, we can't, we can't pay. And so two events in a row, they requested full scholarships for two kids. And so we were out $800 for those two kids. And both events in a row, they didn't show up. And so as I'm writing the check for, for these two events... And I get to the end of the second one, I realize we have spent $800 out of our scholarship fund for two people who had never shown up. Sitting in the office on a Monday, and I get paged from one of our administrators. I say, hey, Michael, so-and-so's on line one for you. And I have this immediate response. I'm like, she's going to ask for money. Because this is a parent who anytime she called, the only thing she was asking for was money. We just got through the second event where her kids didn't show, and I'm, I'm sitting there, I'd looked at the budget, and like, we've dropped $800, $800, just throwing it away. So I answer the phone, and like, hey, how's it going? Oh, good, you know, but life's hard right now. We were just wondering if, and she proceeds to ask for money. And so I respond to her, I said, hey, listen, I, I can empathize with that situation. I've been there before. I remember when my dad get, got laid off. I remember when I, growing up, like, like it was one of the biggest blessings in life for our family that we got put on free lunch. So that instead of taking a, just a single sandwich to lunch, like I could actually have a hot meal at lunch. I remember when I got my number and I would punch it in. I, I remember those times. Like I remember what it's like to be on hard times. I get it. And so I'm sitting there and I'm empathizing with this person. I understand what it's like to be down and out financially. So she asked, she said, hey, I know there's this lock-in coming up. Can we get a scholarship for it? I said, no. You can't. You can't, and here's why. Over the past few months, we've expensed $800 for nothing for your family. One of the things that you knew going in is that our expectation was that you attend. And your, your two kids didn't attend either one of these things. Here's what I will do for you, though, and I know it's hard. I'm not going to ask you to pay back the $800. I'm going to give you a year to pay back $200. That's all I'm going to ask of you. Are you willing to pay back that $200? The answer is no. We can't do that. In fact, we aren't going to do that, even if we could. I was like, well, I'm sorry. I can't help you. You've wasted $800 of the church's money. I can't give it any more. But Michael, you're a Christian. Christians don't tell people no when they're in need. Anytime somebody asks a Christian for help, you're supposed to help them. And so I'm sitting here 
My body gets tense. There's some emotions. I said, man, I, I know that's what you believe. That Christians are this unlimited resource of finances. I said, but here's what I'm going to ask you. Did your, your kids decide not to attend because they were, they'd rather sleep in? Well, yeah. Well, so you've put me in a, a tough situation where you believe Christians should do certain things. And I'm saying right now, my responsibility as a Christian, as a pastor, is to protect those dollars so that kids that will actually use those dollars can have those dollars. So I can continue to say yes to everyone else. And so that phrase, but Michael, you're a Christian, it put me in a rough situation and I was tasked with living out being a Christian with expectations that I was not able to meet on my own. Ninth grade, I'm in biology. As a study group, we've got a big test coming up and we're going through and we're studying Darwinian evolution. And so as we're going through the notes and we're going through the practice test and all that kind of stuff, the question comes up about macroevolution. What is the explanation? What is the explanation for how we got homo sapiens, human beings? How did we get that? And there on the paper, the answer was evolution. And so as we're going through that, it comes up and they ask the question, and my response is evolution. And my study partner looks at me and says, but Michael, you're a Christian. Christians can't believe that. And I said, hey, I understand your point on that. Let me say this. I'm a sawyer. And I know what happens when sawyers come home with bees. So the answer is evolution. And so not every, not every hill is a hill to die on for me. But even in ninth grade, I had to answer the question, what it means to be a Christian when there's people that have expectations. Now, over the course of this series, we, we started off with the idea that Jesus has the expectation that his followers would love God and love people. But you know that the expectation to love people can be a very, very challenging expectation. In fact, if we live out that expectation day after day after day, it can become so taxing that we get to the end of our emotional energy and we just want to give up. Now, there's some certain types of people that if they've been pouring themselves out for the sake of others, they've been loving each other well, they've been loving and loving and loving and loving and giving and giving and giving and sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing, when they get to the end of their own ability, they're going to respond in a few different ways. Some of you are isolators. Like you have poured out and 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 all you want to do when you get home is to go be by yourself. I have a closet in my house that I hide for my kids in. <laughs> Not during hide and seek, okay? It's like three doors in, and so by the time they get to the closet, I've had a pretty good heads up, okay? And I find myself sometimes at the end of a long day or the end of a tough week in ministry, having poured out on, this, on, the, on behalf of others, and I just need to be by myself. And my capacity to love people as a Christian has run out. So I get by myself. Now, there's others of you who are not isolators, you're criers, okay? Like you find yourself getting to the end of your emotional ability, and it's just like randomly, all of a sudden, it's like, I don't, I don't know why I'm crying. I don't know why I'm upset. 
But that cat, it just, it's so cute, but it's so lonely. And you find yourself, you, you find yourself when you've expensed and expended your ability to love on your own, very, very emotional. And this is the one that I fight the most. Not the crying one, the next one. <laughs> Too close to I'm not a crier. Some of us, if we've expended our love for others and we're at the end of our own ability, what we do is we pour out and we love and we love and we love and the emotional tension builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and then all of a sudden it's like, stop bothering me. Dad, all I asked for was a paper towel. It's like at dinner time, the paper towels are in front of Stop asking me for things. It's like, like you have the paper towel. Like, I, like my little three-year-old cannot rationalize why I'm so angry about the paper towels. And it's like, do you understand? I'm going to have to tear it off and then pass it. Ac- How much do you want me to do? I think all of us, all of us realize that our capacity to love without end is limited. On our own ability and our own power, we have limits. And so Jesus, knowing this, teaches his disciples what it means to love. Teaches his disciples what it means to be a Christian who loves people every single day. John 15 Now, we're going to fly through these verses, and I'm going to take some time to talk about these. I'm not going to cover these all extensively. Um, They're in the uh, Uversion event. I encourage you, if you have a Bible of your own, to kind of document these verses. If you want to talk about these verses more, Sunday morning in small groups, you'll be talking about these uh, kind of from a different angle. But I I want to go through John 15 together. John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So Jesus sets up this picture, this imagery of the vine, within a garden. And so Jesus says, God the Father is the vine dresser, the gardener. Jesus is the vine. It goes on. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, real quick, you've got God the Father as the gardener. You've got Jesus as the vine. And the little branches coming off of the vine are us, followers of Jesus. And so the expectation of the branches is that the branches would bear fruit. The branches need to bear fruit. So Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Which means that any any Christian that's not bearing Christian fruit is kind of taken away. There's a removal. Now, we're not wrestling with what that means tonight. Okay, I I, want to get, I just want to like, if you're saying, what does it mean for the branch to be removed? We're not wrestling with that tonight. That is a, a, a different theological topic than we're going to cover tonight. I want you to see the next part, though. But every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Now, if you don't know what pruning is on a vine or on a plant or something like that, what you do is you go around with like little, little plant scissors or whatever, and you cut off any of the part of the branch that's not bearing fruit, like the little dead parts. If you have like a plant inside your house that's got like leaves or an ivy or whatever, if you have like an English ivy, you would cut off the brown leaves so that the green leaves would continue to grow, that type of stuff. You got it, English ivy in your house? Wonderful. You can transplant those well. You can share them with your friends. It's really good stuff. 
Okay, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it's not for some like, like ornate reason. It's so that more fruit would be produced. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Meaning that Jesus' followers have heard his word, have acted on his word, and because they have acted on his word, because they've listened to the word and have responded, they are in good standing with God. They've been made clean. Verse 4, now if you're not going to remember any other verse but this verse, this is the one, okay? This is the verse the passage hinges on. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now we're going to wrap up thinking about this phrase, abide in Christ. But before we do, I want to just kind of get this picture in your mind. When you see the word abide, I want you to think of effortless rest. Effortless rest. At camp and on some of our retreats, we've set up enos. And one of the things that drives me crazy when some of our students set up enos or hammocks, anything like that, is they seem to want to put them up six feet to eight feet off the ground. I can't get into those. There's no, I mean, there's no way. And if, if I were to, I'm sitting there hanging eight feet above the ground, and I am scared to death that the seventh grader who hooked up the straps did not hook them up correctly. There is nothing effortless in that type of rest for me. When we hear the word abide, I want you to think of effortless rest. Now, if we back up two, ver- two chapters in the Bible, what we'll see is that this passage in John 15 is actually happening between Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper, right before he's betrayed, right before he's crucified on the cross. And if we look back at John chapter 13, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, tonight, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. So the disciples are like, well, who's going to betray him? Who's going to betray him? And they look over at John, the beloved disciple. And you know what it says John is doing at this Last Supper? He is reclining against Jesus' chest. He's, He's like lounging. And he's reclining against the chest of his friend. And so what the disciples do is they say, hey, John, ask Jesus who's going to betray him. And so John, from a lounging position, looks up over his shoulder and says, Jesus, who's going to betray you? I, I say that image because I, I want you to have that idea of effortless rest in the presence of Jesus. Like the communal, the, the friendly, the intimate aspect of reclining with Jesus is the effortless type rest that Jesus is talking about when he says, abide in me. It's not a stranger. It's not somebody we don't trust. It's not somebody we don't know. And it's not by our own efforts. It is effortless abiding. So Jesus says, those who abide in me can produce much fruit, meaning those who abide in me are capable of loving and loving well. Those who abide in me are capable of obeying my commandments. And so if my commandment says love God and love people, 
It's only people who abide in Christ, only people who effortlessly rest in the presence of Jesus that are able to produce the fruit that Christ has called them to produce. Because separate from Jesus, nobody can produce fruit. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you know why the tension builds? Do you know why some of us isolate, some of us cry, some of us explode? Because in our attempts to love, we're attempting to do it by our own power. We're attempting to do it divorced from a regular, daily abiding in Christ. Because if I was abiding in Christ, I wouldn't blow up at my kid for asking for a paper towel. Because Jesus wouldn't blow up at my kid for asking for a paper towel. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire, and burned. But if you abide in me and my, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Meaning that if you are in the presence of Jesus abiding with him, that his will will be your will and your request, that when you make them known to him, will come to fruition. He hears you and he'll respond. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let me, let me say this. I believe in this room right now, there's a large percentage of people in this room who would call themselves Christians who are not Christians. One of my biggest concerns is that you would graduate out of this student ministry having said a prayer, having called yourself a Christian, but you've never actually committed your life to Christ. It is okay in Georgetown to be a Christian. In fact, in most of the circles you run in, it is socially expected of you to be a Christian. I want you to hold yourself accountable to this verse, that God is glorified when you produce fruit, but when you produce fruit, spiritual fruit, that's when you prove to be a disciple. It's not what you call yourself. That's the test. It's the fruit that you bear. And so if you find yourself pushing back against Jesus' commands, if you say, I, you know what? I'm not really interested in loving people. That's too much to ask. I'm not really interested in making amends. I'm not really interested in that whole forgiveness thing. I'm not really interested in love, joy, peace, patience. I'm not interested in those types of things, making new disciples. I'm not interested in that. Then I, I would just, can I ask you, why is it that you don't want to bear the fruit of being a disciple? And I'm serious when I say this. There are many students I've had and probably many students right now that would call themselves a Christian. They would identify as a Christian. They need to take a step back and ask the question, have I ever committed my life to Christ? Or have I simply committed myself to calling myself a Christian? Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Effortlessly rest in my love. So as we're singing that, some of the songs tonight, there is something so interesting when we're singing the chorus, you are good, you are good, you are good. And one of the things I like about that chorus is that it's effortless. Like if you're brand new here tonight, I don't care what your musical background is, you are able to pick up the words and the notes of that chorus because it goes like this, you are good, you are good, Oh, you are good, you are good, oh, oh. You are good, 
you are good, and then we kind of mix it up by saying, oh, again, you are good. Now, the reason I point that out, I experienced it, and I know some of you experienced it, that when the effort goes away, when we're not thinking, but we're simply allowing ourselves to be expressive, it's in some of those moments where we actually feel the presence of Jesus. I love it. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Meaning, if you keep my commandments, you're doing like Jesus did. You see, Jesus did not reject what God wanted. Jesus made every attempt to stay in stride with what the Heavenly Father asked of him. And in turn, his disciples will do everything they can to stay in step with what Jesus asks of them. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. When Jesus asks his followers to abide in him, it's not to give them a life of drudgery. It's not to make them sad, unhappy people. The fruit of abiding in God's love, the fruit of abiding in Jesus is nothing but joy. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is huge. Jesus went to the cross to show his love for others. Jesus poured himself out to the full to show his love for others. I want to go back to if we on our own efforts try to pour ourselves out, we will reach our limit. We will. It's only abiding in Christ's love that we have the ability to love one another. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Now let's, hey, you remember the context of this statement? He's at the Last Supper. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to go to the cross. And he says, if you want to know what great love looks like, wait about 18 hours. You're going to see it. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you my friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Here's my encouragement to you tonight. Two things. As you're praying through in your own life what it means to follow Jesus, I'm going to challenge you to allow yourself the opportunity for effortless rest in the presence of Jesus. My wife got invited to a women's event one time, a women's Bible study kind of deal. She went to it. She came back and told me what they did. So there's a house full of women in a living room, kitchen, surrounding area. They went and they sat down. The lady who had invited them over asked them to close their eyes. She turned on a Spotify worship playlist. And for an hour, they sat there in silence, listening to songs. So my wife told me some of them sat there awkwardly. But there were others who they would like raise their hands. You know, that kind of stuff. For an hour. And so she comes back and she's like, man, that was just... That was kind of weird. I was on a Friday night and I get to church on Sunday and I'm talking with some of the other people there. They're ecstatic. 
Like, that was the best. Like, that was the best thing I've ever been a part of. I was like, wait, let me, let me get this straight. You sat and listened to music for an hour with other people? Yeah, the Spirit of God was there. It was so awesome. I'm like, that, huh. That does not sound like me at all. But you liked it? Yes, it was awesome. How could you not like something like that? I'm like, oh, wow. And I thought to myself, if I were to go into a place like that, how hard I would have to work to fit in there. Effortless rest in the presence of Jesus may look different for you than others. You need to be honest about how you're wired. There are some people that to be in the presence of Jesus, they need to sit in silence and listen to his words in song. And it's in those moments where they effortlessly rest in the love of Jesus. I had a group of students going through something similar to leadership track years ago. They said, instead of reading multiple books a year, let's get like one big challenging book. And so they asked the question, what is it that we could read that would be challenging and valuable? So I asked them, are you willing to read 2,000 pages? They said, yeah, absolutely. I said, all right, let's read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology is a tome. It is a huge undertaking. It consists of over 2,000 pages of deep theology. We got about 37 weeks in, and some of our students were still tracking through a chapter a week. And we got to the end of, of, those, of those weeks, and one of the students came up to me, and he said, hey, Michael, one of the things that God has really been showing me as I've been going through this is that some of our people in our group may not actually be repentant. I was like, what do you mean by that? He said, well, Grudem talks about how there's three necessary steps to repentance. And he said, I just don't think that our group's repentant. And so I need to spend some time talking to our group about what true repentance really is. I was like, man, okay. And so he says, hey, the first step in being repentant is to acknowledge that what you're doing is actually sin. He said, you know, when, when I talk to some of our friends in our small group that smoke pot, they're like, yeah, 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 I know it's wrong or whatever. I, I know it's kind of wrong okay. And they'll like, like halfway admit that it's wrong. He said, so I don't really think they're really admitting, but I'll kind of give them that one. And then he went on, he said, but Grudem says the next step in repentance is to hate the sin. And he said, this is where I don't think they're repentant. I'm like, why is that? He said, because when they say, oh yeah, I know it's wrong, they do it with a smile on their face, like this. Oh yeah, I, I know it's wrong, but uh, yeah. And at no point when they talk about how wrong it is, do I ever feel like they actually hate what they're saying is sin. How can, how can you be repentant of something that you don't hate? And he said, I certainly know they're not doing the third thing that Grudem says that repentance entails, which is running away from your sin. Because what they do is they say, oh, hey, I know it's wrong. But then every single weekend, that's all they do with their friends. That doesn't sound like running. And I... I asked him the question, I said, hey man, like, why are you so fired up about this? You know what he said? Because I've never felt closer to Jesus. And so on one end of the spectrum, you have ladies sitting on couches listening to praise music for an hour, saying they've never felt closer to Jesus. And on the other end, you have a 17-year-old reading, reading Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and you know what he says? I've never felt closer to Jesus. Now, for some of you, the idea of reading 2,000 pages sounds like a whole lot of work. But for others of you, it's nothing. 
And if you're like me, sitting in a circle silently for an hour listening to praise music might sound like a whole lot of work. But for others, it's not. So my challenge for you is this, is to ask the question, what does effortless rest look like for me? If I'm going to effortlessly rest in the presence of Jesus, what does it mean? So that I can abide in his love and in turn I can love others. And the other part I'll tell you as we wrap up is to be receptive to pruning. And what I mean by that is at the beginning of this passage, Jesus talked about the idea that believers who are producing fruit will have the areas of their life pruned out, cut out. You need to go into life saying open-handedly, what is it, God, that you don't like about my life? For me this week, it was the willingness to apologize to my wife for over 16 years of rejecting her apologies. God put in front of me what it looked like for me to cut that area out of my life so that if my wife comes to me and says, Michael, I'm sorry, that's enough. And he pruned a little bit of that selfishness out of my life. And I hope for all of us we'd be receptive so that we'd be loving people. You will not love people well on your own. You might do it for a little bit, but eventually your energy is going to run out. And so my challenge for all of us this week as we go home, as we go to our schools, as we go to our teams, as we go to work, is to allow Jesus to lead us towards love. Let Jesus be the guiding force that pushes us into a posture of love. Let's pray. Father, we are inadequate on our own to love others well. And we are so grateful that you would allow us to see your love for us so that we would pour out our love on behalf of others. And so, Father, we pray that we would be people that are humble and receptive and able to rest in your presence so that ultimately the Father would be glorified and others would have a relationship with you. In all things we do, we pray that we bring the Father glory. It's in Jesus' name.